This is an ABC podcast. What makes us happy? What brings about this state of being that humans have been chasing for millennia? My guest today runs the Leadership and Happiness Lab at Harvard University. He writes a column in the Atlantic magazine called How to Build a Life. And he's a social scientist who studies how people can live their best lives. Professor Arthur C. Brooks has a new book out too, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. Professor Brooks, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you, Hilary. So good to be with you. We will get to the question of how everyone can find happiness in a moment, but just briefly, let's address the Oprah question first. Why was Mm. she drawn to this project as you were too? Well, it turns out during the coronavirus epidemic, when everybody was so deeply locked down, well, some some more than others. I was in Massachusetts, which is the place that was locked down. Other places like in Texas, not so much. But Oprah Winfrey was in California, not leaving her home. And she said that she was trying to use the time to learn more about what she really wanted, which was how to be a happier person. And she started reading my column in the Atlantic and a book or two of mine. And before the end of it, she just gave me a call, said, hello, this is Oprah Winfrey. And of course, I said, sure. And this is Batman. Of course, I didn't believe it was Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) But it was Oprah Winfrey, and she said, uh, you know, I've been reading about the science of happiness. I would like to, what do you say? What do we, what, why don't we collaborate on this idea? And I, I said, sign me up. This is a person I've admired my whole life. And that was the beginning of a really a beautiful partnership, I have to say. Well, and she came to you because you have this reputation for being an expert on what produces more of a happy state. Has it always been that way for you, Arthur? Have you been a sunny character all your life? If I were, I wouldn't write about happiness because it would be like breathing air. It would be that natural. My wife is a naturally happy person. She could never figure out why I was so interested in the science of something so completely obvious. No. I mean, the truth is that, you know, I come from fairly gloomy stock in the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Seattle where it rains all the time. And and the, the result of, well, not the climate, just probably my genes, because half of your affect balance, your mood, is genetic, as a matter of fact, led me to be interested in how I could affect my habits, my practices, my skills to to become a happier person. And I have a, I'm a PhD social scientist. And so some years ago, at the probably the tender age of 55, I, I, I stepped back from my corporate career and said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life on the science of happiness, lifting other people up and bringing them together with ideas and science. And that's where I am today. It's interesting to to look at what you write about how much of our happiness is under our control because quite a big chunk of it is genetic, isn't it? Yeah, half of it is genetic. We know that from identical twin studies where identical twins were separated at birth and, and adopted into separate families. And we know what part of the, the general mood levels, this is not happiness per se, but our expression of that happiness, the feelings that are derivative of that happiness, how much of it is genetic, it's about 50%. Another 25% is circumstantial. You talked about that in your introduction to the piece, that people think that if we could just get everything right in the world, it would be better. That's actually not true. It's about 25%, depending on your circumstances, and it doesn't last for more than a few minutes or a day or a week. So that's not something to count on. And another 25% is our habits, and that's what we should really be paying attention to. Well, the other thing that that caught my attention then on relation to that, Arthur, is that you suggest uh, running yourself like a company, being your own CEO. And I thought, wow, I have some pretty demanding shareholders in the form of the mortgage and the kids. What if your life is a bit more like a collective and less like a business? Yeah, that's fine too. The question is run it like the business you want it to be. And the truth is all of us in our personal lives, we're not just the CEO and everybody's answering to us on the contrary. 
CEO in the sense that your life is an enterprise and you're making decisions over your own behavior where you really are your own most important employee that you must you must treat with respect, you must treat with love, you must treat with compassion, but you also have to be very self-disciplined and have very, very high personal standards. And this is something you learned in your work life, didn't you? Because you were a workaholic and had very high expectations for your workers, which didn't lead to anyone's happiness. That's true. And I had to learn a lot of things the hard way. I started off my career as a classical musician, as a matter of fact, all the way through my 20s. I didn't go to university until I was about 30. Through my 20s, I was playing in a symphony orchestra, most of it in Barcelona, Spain. And and that's a very demanding, very self-disciplined career. So by the time I went back to college and graduate school and became a social scientist, I treated it in the same way with the same kind of exacting technique. And the result of that is I didn't have all the best habits. Mostly I you know, worked 80 hours a week, which didn't lead to a lot of bliss. No, not for you or I imagine your underlings who were getting emails at 5 a.m. Yeah, indeed. And also my family, who are certainly not my underlings. But, I, you know, I'm married to a Spanish woman and Spain is not known for 80 hour week work weeks. They're certainly known for 80 hour leisure weeks. And the result of that is that we had a little we had a disagreement or two about what the best life was all about. And that led me, quite frankly, to start questioning some of my own habits. Yeah, I'm hoping she introduced naps into the family routine. That's a fantastic Spanish <laughs> habit. We're speaking with Professor Arthur C. Brooks, whose latest book, among several, is Build the Life You Want, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey, who is very interested and invested in this idea that we can generate more of our own happiness. Margaret says, I think too much navel-gazing is not good for your happiness. And another text from Martha in Castlemaine in Victoria says, you can't be happy all the time unless you're not connected with reality, but we can mostly have a positive attitude and connection with an inner life. And I know, Arthur, that is a huge plank of your your argument. Just quickly, though, before we get to that, uh, how can you quantify something as subjective as happiness or unhappiness? Yeah. Well, to begin with, happiness is actually not a feeling. And that's an important thing that people need to learn. Happiness has feelings associated with it, but the, the feelings of happiness are really evidence of happiness, kind of like the smell of your dinner is evidence of dinner. Happiness itself is a lot more tangible. It's a combination of enjoyment of your life, satisfaction with your accomplishments, and a sense of purpose and meaning or direction in your life. And and that actually requires a whole lot of painful experiences and negative emotions. So three cheers for Martha and her incredibly insightful uh, note that we shouldn't actually or even can think about being happy all the time. The way that we measure happiness, believe it or not, is pretty straightforward. There are lots of sophisticated ways to do it. You know, more and more neuroscience is leading us to brain scans, different parts of the brain illuminating, or asking people around us to evaluate us. But the best way is to get a good sample of people who are anonymously giving feedback. It has to be anonymous. You can't answer happiness questions with your spouse sitting right there because you will lie. But the whole point is going to be to compare yourself to all the people that you've known. For a number 10 is the happiest person you've ever met, and a number one is the unhappiest person you've ever met. And and thinking about your, your life in general, not at this moment, not based on your breakfast or whether or not you had a spat with your with your loved ones. All things considered at this point in your life, what would your number be? And if you get a big enough sample that's anonymous, you can get incredibly stable and accurate information about people's well-being. Well, let's nail down exactly what we mean when we talk about happiness. I, f- I find that idea that happiness is not a feeling highly counterintuitive. Just about everyone I've ever spoken <laughs> to has said, I can tell you when I'm feeling happy. But I yeah. guess m- maybe it's useful to say what it, it isn't. Uh, it, how does it compare to, yeah. say, fun or contentment or joy? 
Yeah, for sure. Those are all elements of what, what a happy person experiences. And to say, I know when I'm feeling happy, that's true. You can also smell when dinner is cooking. But again, the smell is not the dinner itself. It's evidence of that dinner. And that's what happiness feelings are. Happiness is a combination of three actual phenomena, a sense of enjoyment with your life, the satisfaction that you take in your accomplishments and the meaning in your life. And all three are very different and require different strategies. Meaning is not, uh, enjoyment is not pleasure. Enjoyment is something that's quite conscious. It takes the sources of pleasure and it adds people and memory. So one of the things that I talk about with a lot of young adults is if there is something that could be addictive in your life and you're not doing it with people and creating memories, you're doing it wrong and it's probably dangerous. So nobody, everybody knows that it's not healthy to drink a lot by yourself. If you're going to drink alcohol, you should do it with people and make memories. That's why beer commercials always have people having fun and not a guy alone in his apartment drinking 12 beers. So enjoyment is the first part. You can get it all sorts of places. Satisfaction is the joy that you get after you struggle. This is really important. I mean, humans, believe it or not, are made to struggle. They're made to strive, but they want a payoff at the end. They want, they want a reward at the end of that. The feeling you get when you work hard for something and you get it, even if it's just getting to the weekend, is, is satisfaction. And meaning, of course, is the idea that there's a why to your life, that it has coherence and purpose and goals and, and significance. So, you know, the way that I measure that, by the way, Hillary, is I, I ask just two questions. And if you have answers to two questions, you you have a sense of meaning. And if you don't, can't quite answer these questions, and this is what to start looking for for the meaning of your life. The first question is, why do you believe you are alive? And that can mean either, you can answer that either in terms of who created you or why you're walking around on the earth. And the second question is a little bit more delicate, which is, for what are you willing to die today? And, and a lot of people say, well, I don't know. And that's the beginning of an understanding that, that there might be a meaning problem in your life. And those are the two questions to go in search of and answer to. Really, really interesting to think differently about happiness with Arthur C. Brooks today. A lot of text coming through, Arthur. Uh, after years of chasing happiness and seeming to let myself down, says Bill in the Northern Rivers, I found that after setting my goal to contentment, I'm in a way better place. Michael in Brisbane says, I think we can definitely improve our health through conscious effort and feeling happy is a natural result. But this question for you, Arthur, why don't we keep doing the things that help make us happy? For example, says our correspondent, I know a daily morning morning walk in the rainforest makes me happy, but I continue sabotaging this happiness by not going for that daily walk. This is a lifelong pattern. Yeah. How can I change? Oh, it's such a good question. Why don't we do what we know will bring us happy? And the answer is this. We are evolved to follow Mother Nature's commands, and Mother Nature does not care if we're happy. Mother Nature has only two goals for us, survival and passing on our genes. And all the things that are kind of like those Pleistocene um, imperatives are what we tend to follow. And so we'll want to sit around as opposed to getting out. We'll want to relax as opposed to exercising. We'll want to eat more calories as opposed to going on a diet. We'll want to be disloyal to our beloved as opposed to being loyal and having a happy relationship. We do all those things because Mother Nature is pushing us toward these imperatives that don't include happiness. And this is the point. There's an animal path in our lives and that doesn't lead to happiness. There's more of a divine path, whether you want to interpret that religiously or not. There's more of a, a purely human elevated path that we can follow as well. If we want to be happier, that's really our business. And sometimes we have to stand up to what Mother Nature is demanding. I found it fascinating that you, you said at one point, one way to increase your happiness is through gratitude. And a pathway to that is through vividly imagining your death. How does that lead to greater happiness? 
<laughs> part of it is it helps you remember that your life is limited and that your time is something that's a, your, your most precious resource. And when you do that, you think about how you're using your time and the things in your life that are most important to you. So you, when, you, when you think to yourself, you know, I ask my students, for example, you know, a big, a big uh, event in the United States is, of course, everybody listening to us knows is Thanksgiving. That's coming up and next week, as a matter of fact. And Thanksgiving, every, all the families get together and they have a big turkey and they fight about politics and, you know, all that. And I'll ask my students who are on average 28 years old, I'll say, think about this. How many Thanksgivings do you probably have left with your parents? And they've never thought about it that way because they've never thought about the fact that time is actually limited. People don't. And when they do, they start thinking about their parents and their relationship with their parents. They become more grateful for that relationship because they see how valuable it actually is. Contemplating your death is a very helpful thing to do. It makes it less scary to begin with, but it also makes you more appreciative of this beautiful, scarce resource that we have called time with our loved ones. That's yeah. I want to talk about the the four uh, pillars that you put forward as being essential to uh, maintaining or generating more happiness: family, friendship, faith, and work. And Arthur, you say that we should never give up on the relationships we didn't choose, if at all possible. There's got to be a line though there somewhere doesn't it? Some families are so uh, damaging to particular individuals in them that it is better to be out of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the point is there's really, there's one, I should put it this way. There's only one reason to have a schism with your family and that's abuse. The problem is in our modern world, we're defining abuse more and more loosely. There are a lot of people in our modern world that kind of, that they feed off the polarization on on political and social issues in every country. Everybody knows what's going on in the United States and we see what's going on in Australia and all over the world. This hugely polarized political environment and a lot of people are getting you know, votes and followers and viewers and social media and fame and all this stuff by having you hate the people that are close to you because of these political reasons. And, and I, I guess the point that I'm making is that that differences of opinion are never abuse. Don't give up on your family for that. And I guess that's a decision that's going to be down to each individual in the long run as well. I also wanted to just quickly point out to our listeners that uh, you are very careful to uh, differentiate between unhappiness and things like depression, which obviously need a bigger fix yes. than uh, one or one or two books or columns, and you'd need to talk to your health professional about that. So there's course, there's family, yeah, there's friendship, and you advocate building our friendship health but you're pretty blunt about some of the barriers to keeping friends that, that, that might be their personality. How do we fix that? Well, to begin with, it's worth pointing out that a lot of people think they have more friends than they really do. So a lot of people are listening to this. I mean, why would they listen to the show? The reason is because they want to have a better life. These are people who really are working on the serious business of their lives. And, and many are also very ambitious and hardworking. And that's great. I really admire that. The problem is that when you do that, it's very easy to relegate real friendships that have no real purpose. They're sort of beautifully useless to the background. And that's when people start to get lonely. So I distinguish a lot in this book and all my writing between real friendships and deal friendships. Now, this is really based on the work of the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who talked about transactional relationships and relationships of virtue and beauty. The key thing is that we all need enough useless relationships in our lives where people simply love each other and enjoy each other's company and, and they have a, a shared interest and they're not just helping each other in, in you know, building up their business or their work life or something like that. And that's the first place for all of us to look to have more real friendships, not just deal friendships. Arthur, just quickly, if, if one is not a person of faith, is that a deal breaker for happiness? 
It's not because faith has to be understood very loosely. I'm a Catholic. It's the most important thing in my life. But as a social scientist, I'll assure all of our listeners that anything that makes you small and makes other things transcendent will actually lift you up such that you can have peace and perspective. And you're not obsessed with the individual psychodrama that is every day, my lunch, my commute, my job, my money, my television shows, me, 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 me. Only getting up out of that from studying the Stoic philosophers or walking in nature or, or listening to Johann Sebastian Bach or meditation or even the faith of your youth is necessary for you to have the peace and perspective you need to have a happy life. We're speaking with Arthur C. Brooks, who's a professor at Harvard University and has been looking into happiness for a long time now. His latest book is called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. Quite a few texts coming in asking questions, Arthur. AJ says, this approach unhelpfully elides the material conditions of existence that impact dramatically on happiness, as you've said, Arthur, many of which are outside our control. It's hard to be happy when you can't get a job and you're struggling to pay the rent or buy food. And I notice in the section on work, Arthur, you you say, you know, it's such a big plank of our happiness, it needs to be satisfying. And that is a luxury for a lot of people, isn't it? Does that therefore mean that we should be collectively pushing for change so that stable and meaningful work is available for more people? Yeah, I think that's true. And the point is that this approach doesn't allied anything, really. We haven't talked about unhappiness, which is not the opposite of happiness. And one of the things that we know is that having sufficient income, being able to avoid really avoidable sources of misery, that lowers unhappiness. It doesn't work on the happiness side at all. I do a lot of work on the relationship between well-being and money. And what you find is that any amount of money will not raise your happiness, but it will lower your happiness up to the level of the sort of the lower middle class. You find that above that, the best way for money to raise your happiness is to have it, you know, pay for experiences with your loved ones or have more time or, or give it away to some cause that you really care about. But beyond that, what we really need to do to lower the misery, to get rid of the barriers to happiness for other people is to make sure that they have adequate ability to earn their living, that they can, they can form stable and healthy families, that they can... They have communities where friends can be made and we don't get in the way of their religious freedom, which I think we are in modern life. We're getting in the way of all four of those things too often. And uh, Arthur, you argue that we should aim to be the second happiness, happiest of any given group. Why is that? Yeah. One of the things is the people who are actually, and this is almost a lighthearted point, is that the people who are actually the most cheerful, they actually tend to not always make the the, the best decisions in their lives. The reason for it is that they're they're working for very short-term cheerfulness as opposed to long-term meaning. Remember, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose are the kind of the macronutrients of happiness. Sometimes you trade those things off. You find that people in the 30s and 40s tend to have very complicated lives because they have children and a job and a mortgage and 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 you know life is kind of tricky and hectic. They're not less happy. They're just enjoying things less. And and the trade-off is that they have longer, have more longer term meaning in their lives. The first happiest people at any given moment in college or in life, they're the people who are having sort of the greatest time with the most enjoyment, which means over the long term, they won't have often, they won't have quite as much meaning in their lives. You need to make good decisions and you need to accept some discomfort. And you even have to take a little bit of sacredness with the suffering in your life that comes from, I don't know, being kept up at three o'clock in the morning with your squalling infant or 
or even worse, dealing with your 15-year-old teenager. The practicing gratitude becomes uh, quite intense at that point, doesn't it? It's a fascinating it <laughs> uh, insight into yeah some different ways, I guess, we can conceptualise happiness. I'll leave us with this text, Arthur, uh, from Brendan. I remember hearing a program on RN where happiness was divided into five different types. For example, the joy of having a child, the joy of passing a test, the relief of avoiding an accident, the feeling of satisfying a desire, etc. So the word itself, like love, is kind of vague and hard to define. Well, Arthur Brooks has had a good crack at it in Build the Life You Want. Arthur, it's been fascinating chatting. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Hillary, and thanks to all of our listeners. Professor Arthur C. Brooks is the founder of Harvard University's Leadership and Happiness Laboratory, and he writes a column in The Atlantic, Build the Life You Want, which is what the book is called too, subtitled The Art and Science of Getting Happier, co-written with Oprah Winfrey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.